Well, good morning. It is a privilege to come and open up God's Word with you today. And please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's Word. Probably a good thing that the, uh, we couldn't get into the computer this morning, at least for second hour, uh, because sometimes you know, we might get too used to looking at the PowerPoint. Not, now you have to look at me, though, that's, I know, but, uh, but uh, maybe for a change, right? I know I rely upon that a lot. So um, let's read the Word of God here. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that it is strong, it is powerful, and we thank you, Lord, that it is completely true. We pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes this day, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is the one sin of which no one in the world is free, and which everyone in the world hates when they see it in someone else. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Today we conclude our First Things series in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 with the Tower of Babel, which shows people united by pride and building a tower in collective rebellion against God. Now we began this series by considering God's preeminence. His supremacy. And now acknowledging God's preeminence is completely God-centered. It is an inward turning of all things to Him. And it is an outward acknowledgement of His rule in our words and our actions. Pride, on the other hand, is a completely anti-God state of mind. Now, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 records primeval history. It reveals the origins of the universe, 
the beginnings of time and space, and many firsts, first things such as marriage, family, the fall, sin, salvation, worship, and covenant. Now it gives one central message of God's work and God's character. We see a pattern emerge that reveals God's sovereign grace over mankind as he responds to the defiant disobedience of mankind over and over again. Now in each situation that we see, there is an application of God's grace that continues and increases. And also, in each case, mankind's sin abounds and increases with increasing rebellion. It's as if they were living out Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The more sin abounded, the more God's grace abounded. Increasing sin matched with God's increasing grace. Now, after the flood, mankind progressed in sin and self-centeredness even more. And in chapter 11, we see this tower that they built. Now, chapter 11 is a flashback that explains chapter 10 and the table of nations that we see in Genesis chapter 10. We see the nations as one blood, multiplying under God's blessing as distinct tribes, distinct nations. There are symbolic 70 nations representing ethnic and geographic and linguistic and political boundaries. The numbers we see in chapter 10 of 7 and 70 represent the nations as dependent upon God even if they don't acknowledge that dependence. And the table of nations in chapter 10 shows God's overarching concern for all people, for the Gentiles. Now in Genesis chapter 11, we see God's um, working with man as man rebels. We see mankind's rebellion. Now besides giving us the origin of nations, there are two names that stand out in chapter 10. The first name that stands out is, is Nimrod. We find it in chapter 10 verse 9. Nimrod's name means we will rebel. It is not a popular name. It embodies the mindset of that day. In chapter 10, verse 9, we read this. Therefore it was said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now that was not a compliment. James Voice said this. This is not talking about Nimrod's ability to hunt wild game. He was not a hunter of animals, he was a hunter of men, a warrior. It was through his ability to fight and to kill and to rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states was consolidated. You see, Nimrod was an offense to God. He was a mighty hunter, literally in the face of God, in opposition to God, against the Lord. He tried to turn people away from God. Now, an Aramaic translation of verse 9 reads like this. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, 
depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. He was a tyrant. His city, Babel, was the beginning of what would later be Babylon, the eventual conqueror of God's people in Jerusalem in 605 to 539 B.C. Now the second name that is of interest to us in chapter 10 is, is found in verse 25, Peleg. Peleg means division. In his days, as that verse reads, the earth was divided. Now this looks ahead to the scattered nations of chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, verse 1, we read that the whole earth used the same language, the same set of words. And in verse 2, they found a place and they settled there. They, they dwelt. Now, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, we see the nature of mankind's rebellion. While they were dispersing, a, a portion of the post-flood group, under Nimrod's leadership, decide to stop and build a city as a monument to themselves. Now, the strength of their unity is seen in their common language. The symbol of their unity is this tower they built. In verse 3, they say, let us make for ourselves bricks and mortar. They were, they were self-determined to make their own building materials, to manufacture them themselves. You see, they prepared without God. They left God out of their plans. Their concern was for themselves. They didn't seek the will of God. In verse 4, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that will reach into the heavens. Now, cities in the ancient Near East were not designed to be lived in. They were built for religious and public purposes. And tower comes from a root word meaning great. Now, the tower would not actually reach heaven. They really wanted it to add to their greatness before mankind. They were attempting to steal God's glory. They were blinded by pride and not caring about the boundaries God had placed. They even tried to transgress into the dwelling place of God. Let's build it into heaven. In verse 4, they also said, let us make for ourselves a name. They were trying to find fame and immortality in their own achievements, not in God. They were seeking their significance apart from him. And what was the reason? Look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4, they say, Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. See, the reason was so that we won't be scattered. So that we won't be separated. It's like a... Uh, a small group that becomes a larger group, and then they don't want to break up into smaller groups again. They like each other so much, they want to stay together. This was different, though. This was on a much grander scale, and this was mankind saying, we need to stay together because our strength is within us. They didn't want to be scattered. Why was that such a big deal? Well, they were disobeying God's command in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. Go there for a moment. Genesis 9 and verse 1, and these words ought to sound familiar. God blessed Noah and his sons, 
and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Scatter. Fill the earth. See, what they were doing is disobeying God's command in Genesis 9-1. And they were rebelling against God's rule. They did not want to do what God had instructed. They rebelled against his supremacy. It was an outright rejection of God, rooted in pride, with no acknowledgement of God, no prayer. They just went their own way, did their own thing, had this willful resolve to basically compete with God himself for supremacy, for preeminence. Bruce Waltke observed this. He said, depraved humanity are united in their spiritual endeavor to find, through technology, existential meaning apart from God and the means to transgress its boundaries. Unless God intervenes and divides them by confounding their speech, nothing can stop humans in their overweening pride and their desire for autonomy. They drive over the boundaries the Creator has established. But what we'll see next is that God's response counteracts man's rebellion. Because in verse 5, to restrain mankind's collective attempt to usurp his throne, God thwarts their rebellion by confusing their speech. He he performs a miracle in their midst that they didn't want to see happen. Can you imagine? One moment, they're all speaking the same language, using the exact same set of words, and another, they cannot understand one another, forces them to scatter, to disperse, to go to different geographic regions where they can understand one another. God, in verse 5 it says, came down to see the tower that man had built. Now, God is all-present, all-knowing. And here, though, he is personified in such a way to say he came down to see it. And what this signifies is how puny the tower really was. The tower didn't reach into heavens, didn't reach to heaven. It couldn't reach to heaven. It was uh, small. It was insignificant. It was the best they could do But God had to actually come down and see it. It wasn't so big after all. And they stopped building. They were scattered, we read in verse 8. They were confused, we read in verse 9. The name Babel literally means to confuse. And God did that. He confused them. He scattered them. Their plan was foiled. Mankind was humbled. They had been unified, now they were separated. They had been confident in themselves, and now they were confused. And God was showing them that what they really desired deep down could only be accomplished by the hand of God, not the hand of man. God was showing them that he is sovereign over the nations. Now what would have happened if they had continued on in the way they were going? See, God knew where their pursuits would lead them. God did not scatter them and confuse them out of punitive anger, or as some have suggested, that maybe he was afraid at what man might do. Absolutely not. What God did was respond in love. He responded in mercy. 
he responded in grace because he was sparing them the greater consequences had they stayed together. God was preserving humanity and protecting them from themselves. See, the root of man's rebellion was pride. The basis for God's response, on the other hand, mercy. I want to make several observations today about pride. And the first really is kind of like that tower that man built. Like trying to build a tower as a monument to their own greatness. Pride is lifting ourselves above someone else. It's elevating ourselves above family and friends and co-workers and even God himself. It's an overinflated view of self, an unwarranted feeling of self-sufficiency, usually manifested by disregard of the worth of others. It's an assault at its foundation on the goodness of God. Lucifer got it started. He wanted his throne higher than God's. You see, the prideful heart says, I know better. I am better. A.W. Tozier said about pride, a fairly accurate description of the human race can be given by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, here is your human race. The exact opposite of the virtues in the Beatitudes are the very qualities that distinguish human life and conduct. We find nothing of the virtues of which Jesus spoke in the opening words on the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. See, Jesus says pride comes from the heart. In fact, go to Mark in chapter 7. Jesus, speaking of the heart, the heart of man, says in Mark 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, pride really, essentially, is competitive. It's my pride competing against your pride. Now, maybe not right this moment, but collectively, it's not my pride right now competing against Kevin's pride. But our pride competes against one another's pride, because pride doesn't just rest content with having something. Pride wants to have more of it than the next person. How many of today's international, national, civic, and personal struggles are not merely a long shadow of the Tower of Babel? Pride is lifting ourselves higher than someone else. Trying to build a tower to ourselves. To make a name for ourselves. 
Then the second thing I want to mention about pride is that it, it blinds us. Pride blinds us to our true condition and our true need. You see, we don't see clearly when we're overtaken by pride. It's kind of like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. Because in Revelation 3, in verse 17, Jesus says to them, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They did not know their true condition because of pride. You see, once the pride sin wraps you up, it's hard to shake. A.W. Tozier also said this of pride. The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Yet the sons of earth are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, cringing under every criticism, smarting under each fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. You see, pride makes us think we're actually better than we really are. We are like rebellious tyrants when we are under pride's influence. We are like little nimrods. Now, until the end of time, mankind will try to assert his will over others without regard for God. And God will continue to demonstrate in many ways how dependent mankind really is on him. We see it in the book of Acts, chapter 12. The example of Herod. Peter had been arrested and delivered by God. And Herod was angry with the people. And they came to him. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 21, on a certain day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat on his throne. And he began delivering a speech to them. And the people began crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And listen to what happens. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. You see, we cannot live, we cannot breathe without God. In him we live and move and have our being. And those who continue in rebellious ways will be left to their own devices, which will ultimately ruin them. And Psalm 49 is a good example. You might want to go there. Psalm 49. In the context of trusting in man-made things, the folly of trusting in riches, in Psalm 49 and verse 11, we read, Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. 
and their dwelling places to all generations. You think the people at Babel thought their tower would last? They have called their lands after their own names. Pride. But look at verse 12. But man in his pomp, or his honor, will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. And then drop down to verse 18. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. And again in verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. God, in his common grace and in his redemptive grace, continues to reach out to mankind. We are dependent upon God. And when we realize it and give assent to that fact, life seems to work. Life does not become easier or less painful, but life just works. That leads us to the third observation about pride, the restrainer of pride. What holds pride back is a humble acknowledgement of God's rule, of God's supremacy. A humble acknowledgement and acceptance of God's rule. Of the Tower of Babel, there was a Jewish legend that said, the great success that attended all of Nimrod's undertakings produced a sinister effect. Men no longer trusted in God, but rather in their own ability. An attitude to which Nimrod tried to convert the whole world. We've got to come to the humble realization that we cannot run our own lives. As God said to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, relating to the tabernacle, to the temple, he said, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. He says, not by might. That word might means collective might. An army. The people who built the Tower of Babel. He says, not by might, and also not by power, which is individual strength. It won't be by the collective strength of humanity together, and it won't be by individuals who have their own strength, but only by the Spirit of God. See, pride's countermeasure is spirit-inspired humility. It's the flip side of pride. Proverbs 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, there is wisdom. We also read that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, God's wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, then reasonable, then full of mercy and good fruits. And it's characterized by going in God's direction, learning to trust. You see, you cannot be prideful and humble at the same time. It's not possible. In the moment that you or I say, hey, I'm feeling pretty humble here, you can be assured you are racked by pride. 
Pride, you see, draws us away from God. Humility, on the other hand, draws us near, brings us near to him. It's characterized by doing what pleases him. You cannot be full of pride and be filled with the Spirit of God. The two are incongruent. In fact, go to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, in the context of the Spirit, we read in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, as not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then what follows in the next three verses is this picture of what is being done as someone is filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now here's the thing. If we are under pride's influence, even if we are attempting to do some of these things, it's fake. It's false. It's not real. Because we cannot at the same time be harboring Thoughts of others that are so wrong and at the same time be praising God. James says it doesn't make sense. It can't, the fresh and bitter can't come out of the same mouth. In 1 Peter 5, we read that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's also this humility is characterized by being content in Him being content in the Lord and accepting His rule. You see, the prideful strive, the humble rest. And we are tempted every day to strive, to ignore God-given boundaries and do what is in our own minds, whether that is lying or solving financial problems dishonestly or making hasty decisions based upon pressure or manipulating someone in order to get what we want. Whatever the case, it all represents a rebellion against God's preeminence. You see, God put protective boundaries in place not to spoil all of our fun, but for our good. Mankind, though, continues to go his own way, and God, praise God, continues to reach out in love and grace and mercy. Humble acknowledgement of God's rule is good and it's right. And I'm reminded almost daily by a picture that hangs in my office. And uh, when we figured out that the PowerPoint wasn't working, I asked Michael to run over and get this picture. It's It's an old picture. You may have seen something like this before. And this picture goes back to 1918 uh, when it was first taken. It was actually a photograph. And there was an elderly man named Charles Wilden who was going door-to-door selling foot scrapers. 
and he appeared at the, the, at the photography studio of Eric Enstrom in the tiny mining town of Bovey, Minnesota. And here's what Enstrom said about this man. He said, there was something about the old gentleman's face that immediately impressed me. I saw that he had a kind face and that there weren't any harsh lines in it. Now, at the time, Enstrom was preparing a uh, portfolio of, of pictures to bring to a convention. And he took uh, the book and put it on a table and a bowl of gruel and a loaf of bread and some spectacles and a knife. And he asked the man to sit down and, and kind of strike the pose of prayer. And what he remembered was that it came very natural to this older gentleman as if it was something that he often did. And this picture seemed to say this, this man doesn't have a lot of earthly goods, but he has a humble and grateful heart. Enstrom's original intent with this picture was it was during the war, and he wanted to give people a picture that although they had to do without because of the war, they still had a lot to be thankful for. But this picture reminds me of humble acknowledgement of, of God's rule. And then you think about the tower builders at Babel. The prideful builders sinfully trying to build a city of their own making that would give them a name, that would make them famous. But you see, humble faith leads us to desire God's fame. Desire to make God famous. Desire to seek His name, not our own. Babel represents the city of man versus the city of God. You see, the city of man is humanity's desire for significance and security independent of God, usurping God's throne. And today, in the time in which we live, self-idolizing humanity is storming around everywhere trying to subdue everything, even to clone itself. You see, building cities is not a sin. The problem is in the human pride and security we attach to man-made endeavors. But praise God, he is sovereign. You see, at the end of chapter 11, Abram, Abraham, is born. And in chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And now through one nation, all the nations would be blessed. In Hebrews 11 and verse 10, we read, Abraham, when he was called by God, obeyed by going out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, for he was looking for a city, a city that has foundations, whose architect and whose builder is God, not man. See, God has prepared a city for us. The city of God, though, is everlasting. In Revelation chapter 21, we read this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and he himself will be among them. And then in verse 22, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city, the city has no need of the sun or the moon, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light. You see, God, in his grace, will not allow humanity to destroy themselves entirely. From Adam to Cain to the people of Noah's day to the people of Babel, we see it over and over again, God's grace in spite of sin. While Adam and Eve was still in the garden, God promised a deliverer would come. God promised a savior, a Messiah. And Jesus is the answer to our pride. Jesus is our adequacy, our sufficiency. See, Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for us. And if he went to prepare a place for us, he would come again and receive us to himself that where he is, we may be also. What can wash away our sin? What can wash away our pride? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Which causes us once again to focus on the Savior who at Calvary took all of our sin and shame and pride upon himself. You see, at the cross, our pride has no place. There's no place at the foot of the cross to lift yourself higher than someone else. The cross shows us our true condition. The cross calls for a position of humility before God. And it's all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, Lord, for your continual grace on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that we can stand and live and move only because of Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.